0: Now, I get the privilege of introducing to you our guest speaker this weekend, all weekend long, Diane Comer. Diane, yeah, give her a hand. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about her so you have a little context. Okay. So, Diane, she is a teacher and an author, a blogger, a church planter, and the co founder, co founder of something called Intentional Parents. That is a conference for parents who want to raise passionate. Jesus followers. And I am one of those parents who wants to do that. And I bet if you're a mom in the room today, you do too. Um, I first came across Diane when I read her book, Raising Passionate Jesus Followers, several years ago. And my husband, Nate, and I agree that this book is so full of wisdom and practical help on how to help raise your kids to know and follow and love Jesus. Then, Last spring, my life group here at Calvary Monterey, we went through the Intentional Parenting video series. And it was through the video series that I got to experience Diane, not just from her words on a page, but I got to see her. I discovered that not only has God given her this beautiful ability to communicate truth on a page, but also he has given her a great ability to communicate truth with gentleness and humility, and compassion, and so much tenderness. So it was in those videos that I also got to hear her incredible story. I realized watching those videos that not only was she a great resource for parenting, but she was more than a woman gifted in that, but also a woman who has encountered God in a deeply personal profound way and has been changed by him. And so when one of our team members, our joyful Bree Kaler up here earlier tonight, um, suggested that I should see if she could speak at our conference this year, I just, I jumped at the chance. And lucky for us, she said yes. So here she is. Would you join me in welcoming Diane Comer?
1: Wow, I, um, I loved you guys. <laughs> you know, it is the best feeling in the world to be wanted, isn't it? And we only get that sometimes in our lives. This isn't the easiest world to be living in right now, but to be wanted, and that's exactly how Christina and her team made me feel, to come and speak today and share my stories and tell you about what God has done in my life. But also, Monterey is kind of an allure here to me. Um, We honeymooned just down the road in Carmel Highlands. Um, I'm going to take my glasses off, so I won't see you guys clearly, but it would be kind of important that I see my notes. And at this age, it's choosing between one or the other. So we honeymooned just, uh, you know, 45 and a half years ago. We had our honeymoon on, um, in Carmel Highlands, and I'm always embarrassed to tell the name of the hotel. In fact, when Phil stepped down as the lead pastor of the church that we had planted, the church was super generous, and they gave us this They they said, we want to send you to Hawaii to a resort. We're going to fly you first class. You know, pastors don't really go first class, generally speaking. We'll send you first class for a week on the beach in Maui. Is that what you would really like to do? And we said, well, honestly, we really dream to be able to go back to where we had our honeymoon. They said, well, okay, this is the elders, sophisticated men. And they said, where did you have your honeymoon? Tickle Pink. (laughs) Anybody know Tickle Pink? Okay, it's really nice. It's really nice, but it sounds kind of sleazy, doesn't it? (laughs) It's actually named after Senator Pickle. Uh, Tickle. (laughs) Tickle. Senator Tickle and his wife loved pink and pink flowers. So there's pink flowers all over the place. It really is not. But it was a little embarrassing for us to tell the elders where we actually had her. Oh, anyway. uh, Christina has told me so much about you. I think I fell in love with you before I even came here. And this group of women really genuinely, genuinely love you. I wish... You could have just been a fly in the wall when we were circled up, about 10 women at least who had contributed and helped to put this weekend together, and I wish you could have heard them pray for you. They were praying for anybody who came lonely, anybody who came afraid, anybody who came last minute, things started happening that made it hard for you to come. So if you're here, you're well prayed for, and you're here for a purpose. And I'm here this evening not really so much to teach you as to tell you my story. I'm here to tell you what Jesus, the Savior, our Savior, our Redeemer and Rescuer, has done for me. How he turned a really hard story, a story, frankly, of my failure, into the best of love stories. And I'm here to remind you that he wants to do the same for you. Over And over and over again. Psalm 107 verse 2 has become a favorite of mine. Let the redeemed of the Lord, that's us, tell their story. Those who have been rescued from the hand of the foe. Any of you here feel like you've been rescued from the hand of the foe? That's my story too. A few years ago, I sensed God urging me to tell my story. In fact, I felt him inviting me to do two things. Two things before I die. Not a bucket list so much as a task list. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship. One translation calls us his masterpiece. I like that. Given specific tasks, assignments. That if we don't do those tasks, those assignments, they won't be done and the kingdom of God will hurt for it. My first and, I believe, most important assignment was raising our four kids to love and know Jesus. That is still my most important job. You know, you're never done being a parent and helping your kids navigate the storms that are now buffeting their lives. I'm now the matriarch of a family of 18, soon to be 19 of us. And as it turns out, the Spirit had more for me after I finished raising them. In John 9:4, I sense this urgency when Jesus says, all of us must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent me, because there is little time left before the night falls and all work comes to an end. That's our urgency from Jesus. And I felt him leading me, pushing me, really, to write my story, to write it for the next generation, for my children and for my children's children. Because when you're living those stories and you're raising your children, there's just, we edit out the hard stuff, right? We don't really want them to see mom for who she really is, for who, how weak she really is. I felt like as my kids got older, and in particular, a granddaughter of mine who has a very difficult first three years of her story. She was abandoned in a difficult situation in Uganda. And Sunday is her name. And Sunday and I just have this close bond. And I just felt like I need Sunday to hear my story of hardship, of difficulty, of failure, because someday she's going to have to face hers. So I did. I wrote my story. But someday when I die, and my life gets summed up on just a few words on a tombstone, it's not going to say, here lies Diane Comer, mother of John Mark or Matthew or Rebecca or Elizabeth, wife of Phil, writer of books. I know exactly what words I want written on that. Diane Comer, 1959 until only God knows when, she delighted in God because that is now my story, how God brought me to this place where my life is defined not by how well it's all going, nor by who I know or what I do, certainly not by what I achieve, but by simply and honestly finding my worth, my value, my delight, and my joy in God himself, in loving him, and more and more understanding what it means to be loved by him. I want to tell you my story in the hope that you can find yours. Your story is the most beautiful thing about you, even if you wish it wasn't your story. Because you have a story just like I, I do, and it's this, our stories are the same. It's all about God bringing you near, wooing you to himself, it says in Hosea. Because that is where the joy is, the beautiful, satisfying life that you crave, that I crave the life that all of us long and yearn for. I grew up in my earliest years in Europe as an American living overseas. While we were living there, we kept hearing about this thing going on back home in the States called the Jesus Movement. Some of you have seen the movie, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. One day, while I was living over there, I picked up the Stars and Stripes newspaper, and right there... On the front page, top of the fold, was a picture of thousands of young people with their hands raised, worshiping and praising Jesus. And right then, in that moment, a hunger began to form in my heart to know what this Jesus was all about. A pull, as Tozer wrote about something called prevenient grace, that kind of invitation, that beginning to be allured into Jesus. And we came back home to America when I was in high school, and we stumbled accidentally, so to speak, upon this really great church. And one by one, each member of our family gave our hearts to the Lord and were baptized, and our family began to be radically changed. But somehow in there, I adopted the thinking. I certainly was not taught this I adopted the thinking that if I would be very good and do all the right things and be very disciplined, discipline was big, then God would look at me with favor and he would bless me. And one of the phrases I kept hearing back then was this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Everyone was tweeting that back in the 70s, even before Twitter or X as it is now. I loved that message. And it is true. God does love you more than you have any idea. And he does have plans for you, wonderful plans. But just in case, I had my list of rules, because I'm one of those. And I made sure that I could check off each rule. I had faith that if I could just be disciplined enough, if I could just read my Bible enough, if I could just try hard enough, then God would bless me with a wonderful life. By wonderful and by bless me, I thought that all would go well with me and I would live basically ever after. That just sounds like the best theology, doesn't it? (laughs) Unfortunately, it's made-believe. And it worked, it seemed like. God did bless me. He gave me this tall, handsome, and godly husband. Phil was the catch of the church. I mean, I was holding my breath right up until we said our wedding vows, that he was going to figure out that I was not that great of a person. But no, nope, he didn't figure it out until quite a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> he was a worship leader, drummer, and a rock band. He drove, get this, a 1970 Le Mans. I mean, come on. You guys don't know what a 1970, Google it, girls. You have my permission right now. A green 1970 Le Mans. He was the coolest guy ever. And then God gave me one by one for beautiful, happy, healthy children. We had a lovely home by this time over in Santa Cruz with a view of Monterey Bay. Well, you kind of needed binoculars to see it from our kitchen window, but it was there. I had everything I'd ever wanted, quite honestly. I had the life. I had the wonderful life. The formula seemed to be working exactly like I thought it should. And yet, something was wrong, and I wasn't happy with all of these blessings, or as happy as I thought I ought to be with this wonderful life, worse Inside, I was in a constant state of uptight, restless, anxious dissatisfaction. Every morning I got up to do what I was supposed to do. I read my Bible, get out my list of prayer cards to make sure I didn't forget anything, to make sure God didn't forget anything. I'd make my mental list of everything I was supposed to do so I could check it off. And be a good girl so God would bless me with a wonderful life. And every morning, honestly, I woke up dreading my day. Another long, lonely day ahead of me. Any of you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you know that feeling of what it means to face the day ahead of you and say, ah, another day? Along about that time, God brought into my life a couple of older women whose very lives made me yearn for more. There was Lori Kyes. Lori Kyes is still my mentor. She's in her late 80s now. She can glean more wisdom from the Word than any woman I know. She opens her Bible, and there's just notes on every page. One, two, three, everything's underlined. She has just mined the riches of God's Word. And then there was Muriel Cook. She was Beautiful and elegant, and so filled with the joy and delight of God. I wanted to be just like her. These women were women at rest. The phrase I hear a lot now and I really love is they were a peaceful presence. Is that a good term? I want to be that peaceful presence. Psalm 34, verse 5 describes the kind of person who looks to him and are radiant. These women were radiant. And then there was Kathy. Kathy sang in the choir. She wasn't pretty. She'd had a hard life. Her husband was in prison at the time. But every time the choir would sing a song about the Savior, about the cross, about redemption, about the blood, Kathy would begin to weep. Tears would flow down the deep crevices on her face and drip down her chin. And I would look at Kathy singing and think, what is she crying about? I wanted that tenderness, and I knew I didn't have it. I tried everything to chase those feelings of discontent away. Trying harder didn't work. Being more disciplined certainly didn't work. Reading books about trying harder and being more disciplined didn't work. (laughs) I didn't dare tell anybody the truth about what was going on inside of me. I just kept it all inside. Sometimes, as we women do, I blamed others. Maybe it was Phil's fault. He was too busy out too many nights. Maybe it was my children's fault. Maybe I had too many of them. (laughs) Maybe it was just that fixer-upper house we lived in that we didn't have time or money or skill to fix up. And so I began to ask God, to do whatever he needed to do to make me close to him, like Kathy, like Muriel, like Lori. I asked him to do whatever he needed to do to make that deep down satisfaction I saw in just a handful of women. I asked him to give me the kind of intimacy that made these women so tender, that made Kathy weep at the cross. Now, I want to pause right here I do not believe that God heard my prayers and just said, hmm, okay, I'll just zap Diane with something really hard so she stops trying so hard to be good and perfect. I'll mess her life up so she finally gets this whole thing called grace. I don't believe he said that at all or thought that. No, I do not believe that God heard my prayer and thought, "Mm hmm, I'll make something go wrong to teach Diane a lesson that's not the kind of father that we have. I do believe that God knew before him the kind of disruption the fall caused, not only in our souls, but even in our DNA, that for me, that corruption that happened at the fall when sin entered the garden would mean an autoimmune rarity that would cause a part of my body to be broken irreparably. Now, back to my story. I just had my third child, and I was in, you know, that glow right after your baby is born. And you're just holding, that's just that first month goes by so fast, doesn't it? You just hold that little one up close to you, and your hands around her bottom. And I was just loving being with my little girl. jean was five, Rebecca two and a half. And my ears seemed sort of plugged. I'd been sick For a while, a mild case of pneumonia when I was pregnant, and I thought everything seemed kind of muffled, sort of full of cotton. I thought maybe I had water on the ear or something like that, so I made an appointment with an ear specialist so I could get that pill that I needed to unmuffle my ears. i just get in there real quick, pick up a prescription, and go home. After what seemed like hours of listening to pings and whistles, and long silences with the audiologist marking on her chart. The doctor sat me down, called me into his office, and that's never a good thing. You never want to go into the doctor's actual office. Sat behind his desk, and he wouldn't even look at me. He just kept his head down, staring at his papers that he kept fiddling with, completely detached. After a pause, he told me that I had a major hearing loss. He used words like severe and profound, said there was nothing he could do about it. I ought to get hearing aids right away. And by the way, he said, it's likely to get much, much worse. All I heard was that dreadful word, hearing aids. No way, hearing aids, I do not need hearing aids. I was 26 years old. I went home, cried in my husband's arms, and then I did what I'd always done when the very few hard things had happened in my life. I stuffed it deep down inside and plastered a fake smile on my face. Praise the Lord, he was going to make it okay. I was sure he would heal me. And some of you do the very same thing, and it doesn't work. Not in the really hard things, not for long. It's difficult to describe to a person what it is like to lose one's hearing. At first, it was just the little things. I couldn't hear the telephone ringing if I was in another part of the house. But this is back when we had telephones and they were attached to the wall. (laughs) And there was this little bungee kind of cord. You actually had to kind of stand near the telephone. Remember those? They are actually in vintage shops. You can find them now. When I finally did hear it ring, I could hardly ever tell who it was. All voices began to sound alike to me. Once I carried on a whole confusing, embarrassing conversation with who I thought was Lucy, only to find out I was talking to somebody named Stacy. Being hearing impaired involved a lot of frustration, a lot of embarrassment. So frustrating to want to talk to someone, to want to get to know someone, but to be afraid to insert myself in a conversation that I was most likely not going to be able to understand. Or to see that dread look on a person's face that makes me know that I didn't understand and I said the wrong thing. But it was at home that the pain was the greatest. When my baby, newborn Elizabeth, cried in the night, and I could not hear her. When Becca, who was the cutest little toddler ever with dimples on her fingers and in her elbows, she'd wrap her arms around my neck and whisper sweet secrets, and I couldn't hear. Or when Jean-Marc, my sweet, introverted son, chattered in the car, car all the way home from camp, we had been away for the first time, and I couldn't hear a word he said. I had no idea what he was telling me. The pain right there. It's such a grief. I grieved and grieved and grieved. Nothing else matters. I wanted to hear my people. I burned cookies because I couldn't hear the buzzer. Alarm clocks became useless. Couldn't pick up the phone to make a hair appointment or call anybody or listen to music. Those are inconveniences at most. I wanted to hear my people. I'd always imagined being involved in their lives, knowing their hearts. I pictured them as teenagers sitting on the side of my bed, just pouring out their hearts to me. I wanted to hear everything in their lives. I wanted to carry their burdens with them. I wanted to share in their triumphs. I wanted to be their cheerleader. I wanted to know their secrets. I wanted to know them. Would they still even try and talk to me? How could they? The future looked so bleak. What about Phil? Would he grow distance? Would I I sort of lose intimacy with my husband? Phil thinks out loud, a complete external processor. His greatest need is, ironically, for me to listen. For hours and hours and hours of listening, he kind of figures it out as he's talking. How, I thought, can I be a wife? How can I be a mother and not hear? I was terrified of a life without sound, of all that I was losing. And I began to sink into a deep, dark depression. I'd never experienced depression before. Everyone has their lows, days, now and then. But this was darkness. I couldn't, for the life of me, just pull out of it. I couldn't cheer up. I even couldn't fake it anymore. I was overwhelmed with fear and with anger, and especially more than anything else, with self-pity. My God, I thought, had turned his back on me. How could he do this to me? I'd been such a good girl. I tried so hard. I was exhausted from trying so hard. I could feel my world slipping away from me, and it was his fault. It took no faith for me to believe that he could heal my ears just like that. He made my ears. Why wouldn't he? Where was all this blessing that I thought he'd promised? Now let me warn you, as one who's been there, just how terribly dangerous self-pity is. You do not want to go there. It's like digging yourself into a pit that you cannot, on your own, climb out of. And because I keep everything inside, nobody really was aware of how deep and how dark I was falling. And self-pity is a tool of the enemy to defeat you and me. Me, the perfect little pastor's wife who followed all the rules. It worked remarkably well. Now Phil began to get a little alarm and tried really hard to cheer me up. He saw it was just withdrawing. He said, say things like, come on, die. You're not dying or anything. What's a little hearing anyway? Okay, that didn't go over so well. We might have had a few words about that one. I wrapped myself tight in the cloak of self-pity and shut everyone out. I read my Bible and heard only harshness. I'd read the Gospels and think, he's mean, he's awful. I went to church and thought, it's not true. All of this going on inside of me. How can God say that he loves me and let me go deaf? I cried in worship. We had beautiful worship this evening. I cried through the worship but they were tears of intense anger. God wasn't coming through for me. I thought he'd abandoned me. I hear people say, especially a lot now and recently, that it's okay to be angry at God. And part of me wants to agree because I know God values truth, authenticity. He wants to hear the honest to goodness where you are right now. He's not turned off by, by where we are in our present. But I'm not so sure it's actually really okay to be angry at God, at least not in the embittered way that I was angry. I think I was in a very dangerous place back then, that my soul was teetering on the brink of rebellion, and I could have lost everything. That's how angry I was at God. I could have just thrown it all away. But does the Father, or does our Savior ever turn his back on us? Girls, does he ever turn his back on us? Never, never. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that even if we are faithless, I was faithless. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Is that beautiful? The Savior who died for us didn't do it when we're all dressed up and doing everything right and following the rules. He hung there seeing the real me, the me I don't let anybody else see, that I hardly let myself see. Not the me that I pretend to be. He loved the whole package just as I am. And every once in a while, given the right circumstances and the right pressures, we get a terrifying glimpse of who we really are apart from him. Like every relationship, there will come times when we just don't understand. When my hearing began to fail so rapidly, was one of those times for me. I railed. Why, why, why? Why didn't he take this thing away that I knew that he could? But here's what I know now that I didn't understand then. When Jesus hung on the cross willingly, nobody made him, for us, for you, for love. He was, for a long, agonizing moment, abandoned by God. That was the plan. He knew it was a plant. In those horrifying moments on the cross, God did look away. Jesus really was really willingly abandoned for us, so that we would never be abandoned, so that our sin would never keep us from the Father. So that intimacy would always be possible, always be available. Well, back to my story. One Sunday evening after church, at Phil's urging, kind of pushing, kind of badgering, I asked for the elders of our church to pray for me, for healing from this terrible thing, to make it go away. I thought, well, I've begged, and I've begged, and I've begged God, and he won't listen to me. I thought, maybe he'll listen to these men. Maybe they're good enough for him to hear. And these men, these friends, prayed like I have never heard prayed before. They prayed that God would heal me. They believed that he could, that he would, most certainly. They wept. They laughed at God's goodness in the midst of it all. And as they prayed, something happened. It's really still hard for me to find words to describe. They don't really describe beautifully Exactly what happened. First Timothy six sixteen says that God dwells in unapproachable light, and I, I think, you know, that's not even fair. I know that God let me see just a glimpse of that light. Actually, see a glimpse of that light, like the sun streaming through the clouds on one of those really stormy days. Especially when it streams down over the ocean and lights up all the ground underneath it as though it had broken behind a thick dark cloud. And I heard these simple words The men are all praying, I'm weeping. And I heard these just two words and my name It's okay, Diane. It's okay. Die, die. It's OK, over and over and over again. And not all sweet and syrupy, but more of that firm, fatherly, "It's okay, die." And I knew with unquestionable knowing that he had said no. no to the healing, what I've come to call the beautiful now, that he had a gift, had a gift for me in this affliction, a treasure something I needed, something I had to believe that I actually wanted more than I wanted to hear, more than I wanted to hear my littles, more than I wanted to hear my husband. Somehow, some way I couldn't understand, I still don't understand, in that moment he made it okay. Just like that. I didn't follow 12 steps to do all the right things, I didn't dive deeper into what was going on in my life. Like that, he made it okay. Truly, supernaturally, right in the moment, God picked me up out of that pit of despair I had dug myself into and set my feet on solid rock. I will never be the same. I am not the same woman. He healed me, not my ears, me, in parts of me that I didn't even know were broken, And wounded that I didn't even know needed healing. The very next morning, God spoke to me through his word. Psalm 40 has become my song. I waited patiently, or that word can mean intently. I was like waiting on tippy toes. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. And then goes on to say in verse 6, My ears thou hast opened. And he has. He has opened my ears to hear him, to know him in a way I never could have before in all my good girl trying. Now I know exactly why he died for me. How I, now I understand why Kathy wept at the cross. I got a glimpse of who I really am. I know who I am apart from my Savior. I am not and never will be a good girl. Not really. And now I cling to him like I never did before because I know how desperately I need him. I love Deuteronomy 13.4. It says, serve only the Lord Yahweh. Serve only the Lord your God and fear him alone. Obey his commandments. And this, listen to his voice and cling to him. I got up that my mor- that morning and my heart whole world was different. Nothing had changed, yet everything had changed. I opened my Bible, and for the very first time, it wasn't about discipline or following the rules or doing the right things so that God would bless me. God spoke to me in his word, words jumping off the page, comfort, friendship, deep knowing, correction. But correction that felt so good, like coming clean, assurance that he is with me, that he is present, that he hadn't abandoned me, that he would make this terrible thing okay, better than okay. And the years that followed, I slowly lost all of my hearing. About the first, from 26 to 30, I was, by 30, I was functionally deaf. For 10 long years, I lost a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, and I became very isolated. I wore the biggest, ugliest hearing aids that they make. My world became smaller and smaller. As Sounds faded, and my ability to respond, to have a conversation with people diminished. It was hard. Though he healed me in that moment, he didn't take the hard away. It's so hard to function in a world without being able to understand, to hear noise and not know what it means. I'm not going to pretend that even now that I like it. There is a grieving that never really goes away. But now I know that God is grieving with me. It's not God's will that I'm deaf. His will for us was in Genesis 1 and 2, dancing in the delight of the garden. My ears are, were supposed to work so that I could love music. Now, I sing all the time. But for a while there, I kept saying to Phil, it seems like, you know, the new music is just like two notes over and over again. And he said, no, Di, it's just that you only sing two notes over and over again. <laughs> I think I sound great. I mean, I sound so good, but, you know, anybody... Anybody singing or listening kind of near me, I've had a few people just kind of look over at me, like, whoa, she's singing really loud, those two notes. (laughs) (laughs) There is a grieving that never really goes away, a loss. I am now completely, entirely deaf. But a few years ago, I had what is called a cochlear implant. Have you heard of these? It's a surgery only for those who completely lose their hearing in both, or functional hearing in both ears. When hearing aids don't work anymore and no sound is able to penetrate the silence, essentially it's a little computer that takes mechanical sounds that we all hear through our actual ear, the the mechanics of our ear, and turns them into electrical pulses that the brain can comprehend. But the Father, he has turned this loss of hearing into what is for me an incredible gift. Now I can't wait to get up every morning. I make my pot of tea. I get up really early to make sure I have a lot of time. I curl up in my big white chair, and I get out my Bible, maybe a couple of different versions, because I just love words and different ways translators put it, and I listen the harder it has become for me to hear you, the easier it has become for me to hear the voice of my Savior. A gift. And it's nothing mystical or especially prophetic ever. Just everyday stuff, giving me hope, giving me insight, giving me wisdom when I need it, conviction. Lots and lots of that. Those gentle corrections that feel like real love, they feel like freedom, like being set free. And sometimes telling me who to pray for, and sometimes even how to pray. Many times I've been sitting at a restaurant table, not able to enter into the conversation, and just talking to the Father about the people that I'm at the table with as if we're talking together about these people that he adores and loves, and as if he gives me glimpses into what it is about them that he loves so much. And it's as if his whispers in my ears and then my praying specifically for my people and my friends, as if it actually matters, as if what matters to me matters to him, and what matters to him matters to me. God has become my friend. I was telling my story to a friend once, and she shocked me by saying, you are so lucky, Diane. I was about 30 years old at the time, barely able to have a conversation unless everything was completely quiet. She said, you are so lucky, Diane. And she's right. I am. But my story doesn't end there. I am still deaf. When I take this delight, little device off that's uh, connected with a magnet to the outside, my world goes completely silent. I can't hear thunder, or the smoke alarm, or the doorbell, nothing. I leave water running all the time. I can't hear it. I burn a lot of dinners, and it's such a great excuse. (laughs) So great. But with this thing on, I've entered into the world of hearing once again. It's not perfect. It's a little tiny microcomputer. Hearing is hard work for me. Exhausting at times. Whereas you just naturally sound comes to you, and your ear does what it's supposed to do, and you comprehend it almost instantly. I have to go after whatever it is I want to hear. I was told that I'm supposed to take this off every day for periods of time so that I can rest from the really hard, honestly, the hard work of hearing. Sometimes that is so convenient. <laughs> I adore my talkative husband. I mean, I love, I mean, it's what attracted me in the first place. He just talks all, that takes all the pressure off of me. But sometimes it is so nice just to say, sorry, I need to unplug. My grandkids call it my superpower. I can hear or not hear. And you know what? I wish all of you young parents with little ones at home could have this gift for just a weekend every now and then. (laughs) The truest truth is that what I thought was the worst thing that had ever happened to me has now become the best thing about me. I thank him every single day for the gift of hearing that came to me in the suffering of not hearing. I now have this intimacy with my Savior given to me in my weakness, in my flailing, in my floundering that I had never had in the strength of trying so hard and being disciplined. This is his gift to me, and I know that now. So much so that one time, many years ago now, but many years after the beautiful now, we were camping, and I got up early while everyone else was sleeping. I'd seen a bench overlooking the lake the night before, and I sat there with my Bible on my lap overlooking this beautiful vista. And I sensed that I heard him asking me, "Die, do you want it back? I just caught my breath. After all these years of accepting the no, of learning what it meant to walk with him through hardship, was he giving me a choice? And my heart just froze. Do I want it back? Do I? No, I don't. Not if it would mean losing this. Not if it would mean losing this listening. This morning, this evening, excuse me, I want to leave you just with three thoughts. Mine is just a story. You all have stories. I got to hear a beautiful woman's story in brief out on the patio. A story that broke my heart for her. And when I expressed my deep grief over her losing an adult son, a 19-year-old son, you know what she said to me? She said, well, Jesus, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And that's where he put me as I lost my son. And I've never gotten up from the feet of Jesus. And she said it in this humble, almost apologetic way. And she was beautiful when she was saying it. I have a story. She has a story. You have your own stories. This morning, I want to leave you with just three things to remember, especially when life goes bad. And life does go bad. We are not promised that everything will go well with us if we just be disciplined and do all the right things. Especially when you're crying out for God to take this hard thing away, and he doesn't, and you don't know why. At least not in ways that you can see. May I just remind you that, number one, God is with you in the middle of your mess. He is there You may not feel it yet, but God is with you in the middle of your mess. In fact, in the hardest parts of your mess, your groaning, your lamenting, your grieving is so loud, he's almost impossible to hear, but he's with you in the middle of it. I didn't know that, not really. I thought he'd abandoned me. I thought he'd rejected me. I thought he thought I wasn't good enough him. But Jesus will not, does not ever abandon his own. And secondly, there's a word translated here in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy 6. You see it all throughout the Old Testament where God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. We call it the great Shema. What it really means is to listen with the intent to obey. It's not just to hear so that we get messages from God. To hear means to listen with an intent to obey. We're not listening for tweetable niceties, nor are we listening so that we can tell others what we think God is telling us that they should do. We're listening with the intent to obey. And may I caution you, as one who is hard of hearing, deaf, to listen in humility, lest we think we hear what we want to hear, or we miss here, God. Listening is a skill, a skill that takes a lifetime to master. And even then, we don't master, but someday we're gonna see him face to face and his words are gonna be so crisp and clear. We will not doubt it for a second that we heard him rightly. We will be leaning in and learning to listen for the rest of our lives. And one last thought, but as I share this one with you. Would you just stand for just a moment? Last thing thought I want to leave with you this evening. Tomorrow I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how a deaf woman listens. Just lessons I've learned and parallels between being hard of hearing, being deaf, And learning to listen to God, because I do believe that listening to God is a skill that we can acquire, that we can work towards, just almost like learning a new language. We can begin to understand and as sheep begin to recognize his voice. But what if, I can't help but wonder what might happen if every one of us here, just in this room tonight, decided that we actually really honestly want to hear God speak to us. Not just when we have a big decision to make, but every day. Like we want to hear him every day, like all the time. When we're at the grocery store, when our, we're on our way to work, when we're, when we're helping our kids resolve an argument of selfishness but we're doing something that we're afraid of when we're just taking a walk. What would happen if we all decided to get up say an hour earlier, maybe a half hour if you have babies getting you up in the night. And we use that entire hour or that entire half hour in order to enter into this gift that God offers every one of us to listen. And we open our Bibles, and we read his words, and we stop, and we listen. And maybe we even write down what we hear, what we think we hear. Or we pray about what we're worried about, what, what got us up in the middle of the night and made it hard to fall back asleep. And we stop, and we listen, really listen. We ask God, what is this about? What are you trying to say? What is my body trying to say in my anxiety and my sadness and my tiredness? And we listen with the intent to obey. What would happen? What would happen if every one of us women in this room decided to do this every day? I'll tell you what I believe would happen. We would set the world on fire. We would set our families on fire. Because God would be telling us, and we would be hearing what he wants us to do, who he wants us to be, what he wants us to say, and maybe more importantly, what he wants us not to say. (laughs) What would happen if we came to him and said, Here I am, Lord. I'm listening. I'm listening with the intent to obey. Listening to how you want to write my story how you want to use my story, how you want to take the worst parts of my life and turn them into what my grandkids call my superpowers. Will you pray with me right now? Father, we're here as a family, just a bunch of girls, really, coming together because we love each other, but really coming before together because we love you, or we want to love you. Wherever each one here is in their story, if it's a good time, they're at a peak, they're relishing that new baby, or the woman who has a baby due at Thanksgiving is rubbing her belly just, she already loves her son. Or whether we're in a hard part of our story, part we don't understand a part that feels like we're being rejected that we're lonely that no one sees us or hears us or knows us or is trying to know us lord i pray that you would make yourself so known to each woman wherever she is in her story that she would feel that drawing that alluring away Pray that you would just quiet the noise in our lives. It's clamoring at us from our phone, screaming at us from the news. It's shaming us on social media. None of us feel like we're enough. Pray that you quiet all of that right now. Quiet the regret, the guilt, the shame the self-pity, the anger, quiet us. Lord, we want to hear you. We do. Every woman in this room wants to hear you. We want to hear why you love us, that you love us, how it could be that you love us just as we are. And we want to hear what you would have us do and say, and not do, and not say. We want to know about our kids, Lord, things that we can't know unless you tell us what they need from us, how we best can give it to them, how we can love them to you. We want to know, Lord. And so here we are, listening with the intent to obey. Pray that you would meet us here, that we would sense your love, and your kindness, your eyes on us, that we know we are seen. And Lord, if there is somebody in this room or in our lives that needs something from us, I pray that you would just tap us on the shoulder. That you would give us a word of encouragement, a word of love, a way of noticing. That might love her back into your arms again, Jesus. Thank you that you actually hear our cry. Thank you that you actually speak to us. We are yours. In Jesus' name.